I'm Bryce Miller. And I'm Jacob Schatz. And this is Talking Atlas. Sometimes on Talking Atlas, Jacob and I have opinions. In fact, most times on Talking Atlas, we have opinions. Regretfully so. I wouldn't say regretfully. I like to believe that people come here because they respect our opinions. And I'm going to keep telling myself that. What a lovely fantasy you must live in. Then again, that's probably in reference to your opinions, whereas I've heard some of my opinions and whew, oh, I've made some choices. Oh, look, some flying purple hippos. (laughs) Sorry, sorry, I was caught up in my fantasy. (laughs) Madre de Dios. Today, Jacob and I are going to provide to you at least five opinions each about the set Amonkhet. Specifically, we are going to give you our top five favorite cards from the set, which is a pastime that we like to indulge every now and again. Amonkhet is only in standard for a brief while longer, so we'd like to take a look back and see what we liked most about it. Without further ado, Jacob, why don't you start us off with your fifth favorite card from Amonkhet? My fifth favorite card from Amonkhet very barely made the list, but it made it because I love puns, especially visual puns. My fifth card is Nefcrop Entangler. All right. Nefcrop Entangler is one and a red for a 2-1 creature human warrior. It has trample, and you may exert Nefcrop Entangler as it attacks. When you do, it gets plus one, plus two until end of turn. Flavor text, if you do not feel the thrill of battle, alive like a flame, you will never triumph. This is a serviceable red common. It's aggressive, it can do a nice little bit of damage with the trample and the exerting, but that's not why I picked it as my fifth favorite card. I picked Nefcrop Entangler as my fifth favorite card because of the specific weapon that this Entangler is wielding. Amonkhet is a plane that is ruled by the evil elder dragon Nicobolas. The particular type of weapon that the Nefcrop Entangler is wielding is two metal balls that are tied together by two long lengths of string. Oh this my particular God, type of weapon everything. is called oh. a bolas. Oh no. Oh, why did I get up this morning? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I want this to thank. Terrible. I want to thank either the artist Dan Scott or whatever beautiful, beautiful art director gave him the prompt for this particular weapon choice. <laughs> Oh, I, I love this man. so much because it is one of the only things in the image that is directly relating to Nicobolas on a plane where every other image has the big swooping Bolas horns in the background or iconography. I guess he's got sort of the same symbol on his hat, but it's not as pronounced as a set of Bolas horns. So the Bolas in his hand is really the most prominent gotcha moment on the card and i i love it it's beautiful it's a very well executed visual pun and that's why nefcrop entangler is my number five card i will admit it took me way too long to realize what you were going for the (laughs) listeners can probably understand this because when i verbally exploded was about when i realized what you were going for (laughs) despite saying to myself yeah jacob it's a boss like what what's so weird about that i don't 
You're sitting I don't, there thinking I don't the understand. word bolas to yourself and not getting it. That's so not, good. No, not a single spark. Oh, I love it. Well, I think that's quite enough of that. So, Bryce, <laughs> what is your number five most favorite card from Amonkhet? It is a fairly plain uncommon called Grim Strider. Grim Strider is three and a black for a 6-6 six, six creature horror that gets minus one, minus one for each card in your hand. Flavor text. As a child, I saw something walking in the distance, far beyond the Hecma, shadow dark and taller than the gods. Even now, it passes through my dreams. Attributed to Petamoon, initiate of Nefcrop. Amonkhet is a very weird setting flavor-wise. While there are some settings that feel like they have one location, a la Kaladesh, Amonkhet kind of actually had one location, because as far as the people in the city of Noctimoon believed, they were everything on the plane. They don't even know the concept of a plane. They probably thought it was endless desert outside of the Hecma. So a card like Grim Strider is a very rewarding piece of storytelling because it gives a sense of intrigue and mystery. Firstly, the art depicts a multiple stories tall, as the flavor text indicates, long-limbed, weird horned something obscured in a sandstorm. And even though this is a single piece of card art, as opposed to, say, me seeing this object in the background of a video game, it does the same work to indicate what might be elsewhere, what there is outside the Hecma. For Grimshrider in particular, what is this? Is it the remains of some former god? Is it the way the mana manifests on this plane? It creates these bizarre horrors? I don't know, but I'm looking forward to learning more about it and the world outside when we come back to Amonkhet. One of the coolest things about Amonkhet as a setting is that especially upon our first glance at it, we're not entirely sure how much of the general negativity that encompasses the plane is Nicol Bolas' doing, or if it's just something that's inherent to Amonkhet. We learn throughout the course of the story that the curse of undeath that is pervasive across the plane, that anything that dies eventually starts walking around again, is inherent to the setting, and not just a part of Nicol Bolas' evil master plan. But that sense of uncertainty that is exemplified by cards like Grim Strider and other little details on the plane give it an extra dimension. This isn't just something that Nicol Bolas has ruined. This plane is weird. Something is wrong here. That's all for me and Grim Strider. Jacob, handing it over to you and your number four. My number four pick is a little bit more straightforward in that it's just a pretty solid rare that allows me to do fun things in a game of magic. My number four is Vizier of Many Faces. Vizier of Many Faces is two blue blue for a creature, shapeshifter cleric. It's a zero zero. But you may have Vizier of Many Faces enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature on the battlefield, except if Vizier of Many Faces was embalmed, the token has no mana cost, it's white, and it's a zombie in addition to its other types. Vizier of Many Faces also has an embalm cost of three blue blue. Embalm is when this card is in your graveyard, you may pay its embalm cost to exile it and put a token that is a copy of it onto the battlefield, except that it has no mana cost, it's white, and is a zombie in addition to its other types. I'm trying to think of a more articulate way to say clones are fun, but I can't, so I'll just say that clones are fun. Clones are fun. Clones are fun. 
Clones are fun. Clones are a card that I can put into my deck, and I know what it is. And yet, until I'm in the middle of the game of Magic and I cast it, I don't have a great idea of what it's going to be. A clone is a surprise and a little present to future Jacob. And Vizier of Many Faces is really easy to be two different things in a game of Magic. That's double your value for one clone card. Not only that, but it takes a mechanic from Amonkhet that was already fairly interesting and cranks it up to 11. What if Embalm has different value based on Enter the Battlefield effects? What's one of the coolest Enter the Battlefield effects? Why, it's cloning! All of this comes together to make an interesting card that I am always happy to play. You'll pardon me. When you got to, I can include it, and I don't know what it's gonna do. I got very existential and started thinking, well, I mean, that's a lot of us going through life, isn't it? <laughs> we make this choice and we're stuck with it. We don't know what it's gonna do. <laughs> But we gotta keep moving forward, I guess. Though, to be fair, my choices almost never end with me as a mummy, which I'm glad for. Well, yet. <laughs> uh, excellent art detail on Vizier of Many Faces. The card has the shapeshifter in question with her hand on a minotaur's marking on the wall, and she is showing horns that resemble the minotaurs. In the embalmed token for Vizier of Many Faces... She's fully mummified, including no longer her arms, but wings, because there's some sort of griffin on the wall that she is instead emulating. All right, that rounds out my number four pick. Bryce, what did you pick for your number four card from Amonkhet? I went with the weirdest tribal combat trick that no one saw coming. Time to reflect. It's white for an instant. Exile target creature that blocked or was blocked by a zombie this turn. Flavor text. Occasionally, there are those who refuse to appreciate all that the god Pharaoh provides for us. Attributed to Temet, Vizier of Noctamun. We've seen zombies in a lot of different capacities over the years. Time to Reflect and the Embalm mechanic and the zombie tribal themes in Amonkhet did a really cool thing. They found a way to justify zombies being in white-black and even mono-white, characteristically undead are grandfathered into being part of Black's color pie, and philosophically that does make sense. But the mummies on Amonkhet, the fact that they exist is kind of part of the structure of the plane, so structure and order, and they are integrated into society, so they make a lot of sense as, yeah, they're zombies, but also they are very heavily white aligned. Being able to flavorfully justify zombies in white now means that you get some really weird cards, like a mono-white piece of zombie tribal removal. On top of that, you're enabling players to build much more varied decks of a given theme. A lot of magic tribes are very locked into the colors that, well, they usually are. Goblins are mostly mono-red. Merfolk are mostly mono-blue. Every now and again, we get a cool way to push the boundaries, live outside the norms. You have a lot of multicolored goblins in Lauren Shadowmore block. You have blue-green merfolk tribal cards in Ixalan. Zombies are arguably one of the most storied, most consistent mono-black tribes, but now that we are getting a zombie tribal in a couple of other colors, you get it in blue in Innistrad, white on Amonkhet, if you're making a zombie tribal deck, you are no longer guaranteed going to be playing mono-black. In fact, in some ways there's motivation to play at least three or four colors, and that's really cool. 
Not everyone's going to use all of them, and that's also fine. If you want to build a white-black zombie tribal deck, this set gives you the means to. When tribes reach outside of their standard colors, we get to ask more questions about the original colors of that creature tribe. And that's really cool to me. We start asking, what would I need to change about zombies, philosophically even, to make them this other color? These are questions that we don't normally ask about things that are so firmly established in the fantasy mythos and in magic's set guidelines. So anytime that we start to branch out and figure out what would X look like if we made it color Y, worlds get richer, settings get more interesting. And that's another piece of why Amonkhet is so cool. That's my number four. Jacob, go ahead and give us your number three. I'm a simple man. Sometimes I like really big creatures every turn. And my number three card, Sandworm Convergence, gives me just that. Sandworm Convergence is six green green for an enchantment. Creatures with flying can't attack you or planeswalkers you control. And at the beginning of your end step, create a 5-5 green worm creature token. Flavor text, cantankerous and territorial. Sandworms claim even the skies above their dunes. Sandworm Convergence operates on a number of satisfactory levels for me. The first, as I've said, big creatures every turn. The second is that, especially when I was starting out in draft, one of the things that I would fail to account for in almost all of my draft decks was the existence of flying creatures. So Sandworm Convergence gets around that pesky fact for me. Yeah, it's eight mana, fine, whatever. But look, it turns off flyers. Everything's going to be fine from now on. Third, works the word cantankerous into flavor text, which is something I can appreciate. Fourth, largest number of ineffective scale birds in the art, I think, ever. <laughs> I was just looking at the scale birds. There's so many of them, and they're so unhappy with being eaten by a bunch of sandworms. And fifth and finally... It's a card about giant sandworms that has the word Dune in its flavor text. Just good enough to work. If the subject of a piece of art is interacting with the scale birds, are they really scale birds anymore? I think they're just birds. I think you're right. Scale birds, by the way, are more or less what the name implies. They are birds put into a scene to give you the scale of usually something very large. If you hadn't heard that term before, start thinking about it when you look at magic cards you will see so many scale birds, which is fine. They do get the idea across of, this thing is large. Whenever I see this card, I think about, would this be useful in Super Friends? Unlike most enchantments that involve attacking, it does stop people from hitting my planeswalkers, but I'm not sure stopping flyers in one token per turn is worth it. Especially for eight mana. I recognize this is on my favorite cards list, but eight mana is a lot. Even Jacob can acknowledge that a card might be enjoyable and impractical. That's pretty much my main MO. That's three up, three down for me. Bryce, what is your number three card from Amonkhet? It is everyone's favorite bird dad, Kefnet the Mindful. Yay! Tuna Blue for a 5-5 legendary creature, God. Flying, indestructible. Kefnet the Mindful can attack or block unless you have seven or more cards in hand. Three to blue. Draw a card. Then you may return a land you control to its owner's hand. Of the five gods of Amunket, 
well, the five monocolored, not totally corrupted gods from Amonkhet. Kefnet is definitely my favorite. Part of why I am using him to highlight the incredible art of Chase Stone. Chase Stone made all five of the gods. And while I'm sure a lot of guidance came from the style guide for Amonkhet, he knocked these out of the park. They all feel tremendous. They're larger than life. These are unconditionally massive. Funnily enough, Bird Dad's scale is helped by some scale birds. <laughs> I also enjoy Kept at the Mindful because in some ways he feels like a callback to one of my pet commanders, Patron of the Moon. Patron of the Moon is five blue-blue for a legendary creature, Spirit, with Moonfolk offering. You may cast this card anytime you could cast an instant by sacrificing a Moonfolk and paying the difference in mana costs between this and the sacrificed Merfolk. It has flying, it's a 5-4, and it has 1. Put up to 2 lands from your hand onto the battlefield tapped. Mechanically, these two cards do a little bit the opposite, but the point of Patron of the Moon is that he plays well with the Moonfolk, which was a tribe from Kamigawa with activated abilities that returned your lands to your hand. So Kefnet is relatable to Patron of the Moon, and actually a pretty fine fit for a Patron of the Moon deck. And if we ever happen upon a least favorite card episode for Hour of Devastation, you will certainly hear me complaining. And by complaining, I mean probably crying at the death of my favorite bird dad. It was kind of the worst. It was remarkably impactful. Good job storytelling, but also why? I don't always play blue, but if I did, I'd want to swing with a 5-5 flyer with a full grip of cards in my hand. That seems like the timmiest way to play blue, and Kefnet enables that. We are moving through our lists at a remarkably quick pace. Jacob, we're on your number two. My number two card from Amonkhet is an understated common, still pretty playable. Any visual puns? No, this one is pure visual poetry. Ha! <laughs> My number two card is Splendid Agony. Splendid Agony is two and a black for an instant. Distribute two minus one minus one counters among one or two target creatures. Flavor text. Wherever you are in the city, you can feel the presence of the god pharaoh. Take comfort in that. Ukat, vizier of initiation. The art for Splendid Agony depicts either a vizier or an initiate being, I have to assume, some form of tortured with black magic. His arms are raised to the heavens, engulfed in black fire. And there's some sort of purple light streaming out from his face as well, at the very least glowing from his facial features. And his arms are raised in the same pattern as the giant horn monument behind him, from which you can see the second sun drifting ever closer to the center of the horns. One of the challenges of Amonkhet as a set is that it had to be one set worth of the uphill part of a roller coaster ride. You know what's going to happen when you get to the top. You know exactly what this thing is built for. But you still have to sit and ride it all the way up, waiting and waiting until you get to the crest of the hill. We know Nicol Bolas is going to be here. We know that this plane is about to go down. We know the next set is called Hour of Devastation. But creating Amonkhet as a setting before that happens and having exactly one set to get us 
in the mindset for what this place is and what's going to be lost is a Herculean feat. You have to establish Nactamun, but you also have to establish that Bolas is already in control of the place despite not being there. And cards like Splendid Agony, with the direct references to the presence of the God Pharaoh, remind you that no matter how cool this place is, it's gonna burn. Today's trend of Bryce responding to Jacob's favorite cards seems to be getting sidetracked with minor unimportant details. In this case, I was wondering why this person was a glowing purple-eyed cyclops. Eventually, I realized that that was their mouth and the eyes were above it. Oh my goodness. I can't unsee this person being a cyclops. (laughs) A cyclops with no mouth. (laughs) There's probably some metaphor in there for that. I don't know. Art's all about interpretations. What are you going to do? Clearly misinterpreted. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're finished with my number two card. Bryce, what is your number two pick for Amonkhet? Remember a moment ago when I told you that Patron of the Moon is one of my pet commanders? Well, the next card is relevant to that. This is Sunscorched Desert. It's a land of subtype desert. When it enters the battlefield, it deals one damage to target player. It has tap... Add C to your mana pool. Flavor text. The only relief in sight is a mirage. I do not know how wizards manage to have not one, but two cards relevant to my favorite, well, not my favorite, but one of my favorite obscure commanders. I don't know. I don't understand it, but I'm going to appreciate (laughs) it. Patron of the Moon is a wonderful combo engine with the right cards. I made reference to the Moonfolk, who have activated abilities that let you bounce your lands back to their owner's hands. With Patron, a Moonfolk, and this next card, you can start to get a combo engine going. This card is Amulet of Vigor. One mana for an artifact. Whenever a permanent enters the battlefield tapped and under your control, untap it. It's plain to see that playing two tapped lands for one mana is pretty okay when you actually profit mana off of that. More importantly though, if you have one of those sources of bouncing lands back to your hand, you can start to combo, especially if something is making your lands produce more than their one bit of mana, or if the effect that bounces them requires no mana, such as Cloudstone Curio. Now we have an issue, and that issue is one of math. The activated abilities of Moonfolk vary in mana cost from about 1 to 5. In an ideal world, you would have the least expensive mana cost for an activated ability possible that is bouncing 2 lands to your hand. Then, if you have any means of making your lands produce more than their usual one mana, you can generate infinite mana. Unfortunately, these stars, or moons rather, do not always align. In these situations, you sometimes end up in a big ol' do-nothing loop, where you get to return two lands to your hand, and then replay two lands, but profit no mana. Sure, if you have a landfall creature, you might do something, but usually you do nothing. That's where Sunscorched Desert comes in. By virtue of being a land that can deal damage in a mono-blue deck, it turns those do-nothing loops into actual combo kills. For this reason, I would say that Sunscorched Desert is probably a Patron of the Moon staple, and I was very glad to have one for my deck. My snide comment for the day is, as someone who's played against your Patron of the Moon deck, I'm very glad that you now have a way to close out the game. I'm pretty sure. Not 100% sure, but pretty sure 
that we once had a 1v1 game that involved me comboing out with Sorotami Savant, which is a Moonfolk that counters target spell unless you pay 3 with her activated ability. So I couldn't kill you, but I could counter every single one of your spells until I did. Yep. That's magic. For one of us, at least. For certain definitions of magic, yes. <laughs> but enough of me torturing you with games that probably didn't end the way you wanted them to. Jacob, hit us with your number one favorite card from the set, Amonkhet, which I am trying to extend more and stall and make a joke of the repetition we have, but I can't, so go! <laughs> I think we got somewhere with that, I'm pleased. My number one card for Amonkhet. We don't have planeswalkers in these lists terribly often. Someone's going to go find some stats on that and correct me, but it feels like we don't get planeswalkers very often. And I know we've never had a planeswalker take the number one spot on our lists. Good news, everyone, that has changed, because my number one card from Amonkhet is Nissa, Steward of Elements. Nissa, Steward of Elements, is X green blue for a Planeswalker Nissa that enters with X loyalty counters. Her plus two is Scry two. Her zero is look at the top card of your library. If it's a land card or a creature card with converted mana cost less than or equal to the number of loyalty counters on Nissa Steward of Elements, you may put that card onto the battlefield. And minus six, untap up to two target lands you control. They become 5-5 five, five elemental creatures with flying and haste until end of turn. They're still lands. Mechanically, a Planeswalker that has X both in its casting cost and starting loyalty is weird. And as we've established, I like weird cards. That's not where the weirdness ends with this card. There's also the biggest discrepancy between one ability's text length and another ability's text length on this card. The zero ability takes up five lines of text. The plus two ability takes up two words if you count a numeral as a word. <laughs> Not only that, but the X in both casting cost and starting loyalty has a very strange effect on when you're going to want to play this card and how you're going to want to use the card when you play it. Because the zero ability is built around how many loyalty counters Nyssa already has on her when you activate it. Sometimes there are complaints about the design of planeswalkers. There's a pretty standard template that most planeswalkers end up in. The plus ability is some amount of mild advantage, whether it's board advantage or card advantage. The minus ability is better card advantage, usually something that protects the planeswalker while it's on the field. And then the ultimate is win the game. Nyssa breaks that entire template. The ultimate ability that she has doesn't even necessarily win you the game. It's good. It's quite good. You get two 5-5 five, five flyers with haste that also happen to be your lands. But there's a real chance that you play Nyssa from your hand and ultimate her in the late stages of the game. So mechanically, this card is bizarre and interesting. Flavorfully... This is one of my favorite things that they've ever done with a member of the Gatewatch. This is the first time that we have seen a member of the Gatewatch, our core cast of Planeswalker characters. Admittedly, she ends up leaving the Gatewatch relatively recently, but at the time, at the time, she was a Gatewatch member. And they gave her another color. And it was another color 
that made me think more about who the character was. Going back to taking established things and giving them another color to ask questions about what they are, what they're doing, what they can be. That was done to Nyssa in this set as well. Yes, she's green. She's all about the land. She's about planes and talking to planes and trying to figure out what the plane was and how its magic worked. But they leaned harder into how its magic works with this set and with Nissa's activity on Amonkhet, the things that she was learning, the things that she was seeking out. In the story of Amonkhet, Nissa looks at the plane not necessarily as a living creature for the first time, because on Amonkhet, everything's already dead. You cannot evaluate Amonkhet as a living creature because the plane is not living. So instead, she is forced to take a more clinical, more stepped-back, more blue look at the plane. She looks at Amonkhet and says, Wait, this is a system of magic. I can look at how this is being manipulated. I can look at this clinically and establish how this plane works that way. By turning Nyssa into a blue-green character for this set, instead of just a mono-green character, we expand the way that she is willing to interact with planes. You take the core part of her character, and you blow it to bits, and you try to reassemble it to solve a different problem. That's really cool. I want to see this being done with more characters as we get through the story. At time of recording, we're in the middle of Dominaria's story, and it's being suggested that Gideon might wield a weapon of immeasurable power that is also associated with ancient evils. We're leaning towards a white-black color identity. That asks more questions about Gideon. And I really hope that this starting point with looking at Nyssa and seeing how she could be different leads us to take that approach with more of the Gatewatch characters as we move forward. I actually had this Nyssa on my honorable mentions list, but listening to your very emotive description of all these things, I feel like she probably did deserve to be somewhere on my list. I do like the card a lot. I'm almost obliged to as someone who loves blue-green and also likes Planeswalkers, but I forgot how mechanically weird she is. I might play a turn three Nisa for the sole purpose of scrying and getting lands. I might play a turn seven Nisa to immediately hit you for 10 in the air. I might play a turn four Nisa to do a mixture of these things or get some middling value. By changing her mana cost and loyalty to X, they have essentially created a Planeswalker who has more abilities and as such, a lot of possibilities. Thinking on it, this Nissa is a fusion of a lot of the different things that I've said I've liked during this podcast. She can come down as a gigantic walker. You could have X equals 10. 10's a big number. X lets you be 10. It's true. <laughs> also, she can be eight different cards, as you've said. That's more than two clones. <laughs> She can even get you a clone. The <gasps> possibilities are endless. Randomized decks, yay. What could be on top of my library? I have this clone in my hand, or I could look at what's ever on top of my library. And it could be anything, even a clone. All right. I think that about does it for my number one pick. Rice, take us home. Which card is your very favorite from Amonkhet? Knowing me... It may not be surprising to find out that this card is also blue-green. It is Bounty of the Luxa. Two green-blue for an enchantment. 
At the beginning of your pre-combat main phase, remove all flood counters from Bounty of the Luxa. If no counters were removed this way, put a flood counter on Bounty of the Luxa and draw a card. Otherwise, add colorless green-blue to your mana pool. Or by modern text, just add colorless green-blue. I am 95% sure that Bounty of the Luxa is not a good card. Maybe even 99% sure that it is not a good card. Good cards are consistent. Good cards get you value sooner rather than later. This card is not consistent. It flip-flops every turn between drawing a card and getting you three mana. It is also not quick because you must wait until your next pre-combat main phase to take advantage of it. But what this card is, is really, really weird for a number of reasons. One, it uses a counter, not for a quantity, but for a marker of if something has happened. Two, it is a top-down, flooding the banks of the Nile card, which can only happen when you've decided to do an Egyptian setting. Three, it lets you add three different types of mana to your mana pool at once, something that probably no other card in Magic does. Jacob, check me on that. Is that correct? I have no idea how to do a Scryfall query for exactly that, so I'm going to say yes. I think yes. Probably. We hope. Probably. Oh, I lied. Martyr War Shrieker. Oh, it that's adds right. Black, oh, that's white, one of my favorites too. This turn. I'm a it fool. is very cool. The point is, this card is very bizarre, really cool for a lot of different reasons. Better yet, I have motivation to use it besides Bryce plays pet cards because she can. Specifically, I have a five-color Enchantress deck. This card gives ramp and card draw. Those are both things the deck needs. And you know what? I can probably get away with doing only one of those things each turn. The card may be complex, but the reasons are simple. For which, Bounty of the Luxa is my number one favorite card from Amon Ket. Funnily enough, this card made it onto my honorable mentions. Haha! Because it is very weird. In fact, it's so weird that its most direct mechanical predecessor is the original Homerid. I'm sorry, excuse me? The original Homerid is two and a blue for a 2-2 that has the following oracle text, because I'm not going to sift through its original text. Thank you. Homerid enters the battlefield with a tide counter on it. At the beginning of your upkeep, put a tide counter on Homerid. As long as there is exactly one tide counter on Homerid, it gets minus one, minus one. As long as there are exactly three tide counters on Homerid, it gets plus one, plus one. And whenever there are four or more tide counters on Homerid, remove all tide counters from it. It is a card that mechanically represents the rising and falling of tides, just like Bounty of the Luxa. To be clear, this card's closest mechanical ancestor is over 23 years away. That's incredible. What's not incredible are homerids, but I'm going to put that aside for now. <laughs> it just goes to show how weird a card this is. And it's a much better design than original homerid is. That's true. This card may not be very good, but it's not quite that bad. And more to the point, it's just more interesting. There's not a whole lot of difference between a 2-2, a 1-1, and a 3-3 over the course of four turns. Bounty of the Luxa does something different every turn. I think we got through our top fives with a little bit of time to reflect ah. on our honorable mentions. Haha. So, Jacob, do you have any honorable mentions you'd care to share or mention, as it were? Oh, do I? The first honorable mention is Approach of the Second Sun. 
it's a little too good to actually include in my top five. And I'm still kind of miffed that it's not a story spotlight card, since all of the stories opened up with the approach of the second sun. Some of you might be saying, that's not how a spotlight works. I say, hush. I look forward to our return to Amonkhet and the story floodlight cards. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to highlight every card in this set, so we made them floodlight cards. We put the Planeswalker symbol behind every card. I would buy more of that set, if I'm being completely honest with you. (laughs) That would do it. I am an easy mark, marketers. I have a few other honorable mentions besides Approach to the Second Sun. Blood Rage Brawler, which is one and a red for a 4-3, and after that I just stop reading the card. When it enters the battlefield, you have to discard a card. But who wants lousy cards when I could have a 4-3 right now? (laughs) There's also Lay Claim which is five blue-blue for an enchantment aura. Enchant permanent, you control enchanted permanent. It has cycling two. That doesn't matter. Kafnet's hand is gigantic in the art, and that's the most important thing on this card. It looks like a moment straight out of Monty Python. Giant hand coming out of the sky, taking something. This is mine now. Yoink. You can get it back once you've cleaned your room. Aw, bird dad. (laughs) Aw, bird dad. It's also a scale dragon that does not help with the scale because the hand is very far in the foreground. The rest of Kefnet is very far in the background and the dragon, I got no clue where the dragon is supposed to be in comparison. Oh, wow. That is really confusing perspective. Because you can make up and change the rules when you're a god. Wait, I understand. The issue is that the back part of Kefnet's forearm that is hitting that obelisk His wing goes all the way out of shot to the right, and it's a bronzy color. His bracery thing is a bronzy color, and it runs into an obelisk that is brown. So when I first looked at this card, I thought the hand was somehow coming from all the way out of shot, despite Kefnet being nearly centered in shot. Now I understand that his shoulder is actually straight ahead from where his hand is, and his wing makes it look like the hand is weirdly directionalized the shapes are a little bit muddied but it's okay because bird dad is best dad and lastly for my honorable mentions is sacred cat because in the time since Amonkit got released i got myself a little waif of a black cat and she's the cutest thing in the world and she looks a lot like this cat does she look a lot like that cat if that cat's embalmed i hope never to know same do you have any honorable mentions no there is no honor here (laughs) <laughs> the only honor is in the glory of exalting the god pharaoh. May his return come swift and may we be found... May his return... Yeah. May his return be swift and may we be found worthy. May his worthy. return come swiftly and may, may we be found worthy. May his return come swiftly and may we be found worthy. What, do you, what cards do you want to talk about? So yes, I have a handful of honorable mentions here. One of them is Hazaret's Monument. Three mana for a legendary artifact. Red creature spells you cast cost one less to cast. Whenever you cast a creature spell, you may discard a card. If you do, draw a card. They could very easily have given the blue monument the card advantage. Well, card quality at least. I'm glad that they didn't because red needs it sorely more. Another prime choice here, Archfiend of Ifnir. Three black black for a creature demon is a 5-4 with flying. It has cycling two, so you can discard it and draw a card if you pay two mana. And whenever you cycle or discard another card, put a minus one minus one counter on each creature your opponents control. It is no secret that I am a large fan of the cycling mechanic, 
Before Amonkhet happened even, I had an Alesha cycling deck, so that's a red-black-white cycling deck. Archfeet of Ifnir is among many cards that made the cycling payoff actually pay off some more. This card is very spooky both to look at and play against in Limited. That's about it for me and Jacob today. So, Jacob, if someone wanted to get entangled in your puns, where could they go? They could find me anywhere they could find someone named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit. And I found that wordplay is the least successful way to exalt the god pharaoh. He doesn't like it very much. And Bryce, if someone like me wanted to ask why Shefet Monitor didn't make your list at all, where would they be able to find you? They can find me nodding along and understanding on Twitter as walking underscore atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. Shefet Monitor is pretty neat ramp. I do like the desert call out. Unfortunately, it is still fairly narrow. It probably should have been in my honorable mentions. I looked at it a few times, but it's not here. Consider it somewhat honorably mentioned. Anyway, for more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Patreon at patreon.com slash opalnebula. It's been lovely chatting with you all about Amonkhet, but it's time to get the sand out of my boots. So until next time, happy planeswalking. <laughs>